we'd been hiding from the government for over a hundred years, but we got bored, so we started a band, and we wore various costumes. The, the probably the most extreme was the lycra unitards that we wore with bits of cardboard stuffed down the front of them, um, <laughs> just terribly. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tom Meets Interesting People. This is the podcast where I meet everybody from voice actors to nuclear engineers to talk about their work, their projects and their processes. And my guest today is a friend of Martin Wiskin, who you might remember from my season finale uh, last season. And we, in that episode, we talked about connectivity and we talked about networking and the result of that is another episode uh, with an, a new guest. So I want to introduce you to Andrew Culture. Uh, Andrew Culture wrote his first book, The A to Z of Cats, in 1984 at the age of eight. And since then, he has spent as much time as possible writing and making music and trying to squeeze as much out of life as possible. Now, much of his time these days is spent making and performing music, but he also manages to find the time to run an SEO agency. And he's also a cheerful member of Toastmasters International, which basically means he has no time. And I can very much relate to that. Um, unfortunately, he's still waiting to hear back from the publishers about whether or not they want to publish the A to Z of Cats or not. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but I want that book to happen. So this podcast is going to be the beginning of a GoFundMe. That's what it's going to be, Andrew. <laughs> it's a shame I sent them my only copy, really. <laughs> so let's kick us off with your music. Now, you, you, you gave me your, your, your website when we, when we first met, and I went straight to the music section because I love music. And you have done more projects than I've had hot dinners. <laughs> And there are, they, they, they seem to be a completely different vibe from each other. You've got some stuff that's solo, some stuff with other people. So my first question for you is how do you find the time to explore all these different genres? It's not so much a, a point, a case of finding the time. It's the, fi the case of what would happen if I didn't find the time. Mm -hmm. I think that if there's something creative you really want to do, you will find the time everybody's busy everybody has you know i'm a parent as well so as you say i run a business and I've, I've done run several businesses at once in the past but what happens if i don't create i didn't want to be somebody who gets to their i was going to say their 40s i'm almost at the end of my 40s now and who regretted spending too long on a career or regretted not making that album or not taking a chance i, I don't know where this fear came from i've, I've, I've been perfectly healthy my whole life and I'm blessed not to have been kind of struck by having any friends die tragically young or a lot of the other things that tends to really drive people forward. I think just since I was, uh, you know, writing the A to Z of Cats all the way back in the early 80s, it's, I've not really considered why I do it other than I have to. It's a compulsion. And mm -hmm. I think that's something I find with a lot of creative people, certainly people I, I make music with. If you ask them why they do it, it's a, it's, it's a almost bewildering question. It's like, well, well, why wouldn't I? 
or one of the favorite answers I get is, well, what else would I do? And it's always from people who are really productive. What else yeah. would I do? Well, I think you'd probably find something else. But, you know, that that's that's the driving force. Cram in as much as you possibly can. It's not quite kind of burn bright and leave a big skid mark. It's more kind of burn adequately and leave <laughs> lots of boxes in the loft full of stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. I can I can relate to the first one you said there. Burn, burn completely bright and burn yourself out because I've certainly... Um, I've certainly sort of done that. And yeah, as you said, cramming as much in as possible. I've noticed a lot of the guests I've had on this podcast, we're in the second season now. We're halfway through the second season at this oh, point, um, I think. Uh, depends if someone's cancelled. Uh, <laughs> um, I've noticed they have to keep busy. They have this drive that you just mentioned there. Yeah, it, it's, it's a real common thing. I, I think it... Now, as I'm getting older, I'm wondering if it's kind of connected to ADHD or something. Not not just in myself, but I I have I can also sit around doing nothing. I've, I've kind of learned, especially as I've got older, to spend time. Last Sunday, I read a book. Oh, that's still doing something, I suppose, isn't it? You know. Anyway, I sat down, and I don't think anyone actually sits and stares into space and just does absolutely nothing. I, I read something recently saying that. The different there's two types of people in the world. There's people who work hard to achieve a goal, and people who work hard to to have a thing, have an accomplishment, have like one defining moment that they hope generations will look back on and say, "Well, that is a thing." And then there's other people like me who just want to find interesting stuff to do and aren't necessarily quite as goal orientated. I think especially with, with being a musician, we have to set goals. We have to make an album. We have to tour. We have to write a song because there, it's it's a, an art that creates a product. But there are an awful lot of other creative endeavors that don't have a final product. Like my dad has been building a model railway um, rep, replica of a, a station for a place called Alber in Suffolk. And he's been doing that since before I was born. And he'll never finish it. But it doesn't take away the kind of the accomplishment of creating that there isn't there isn't a final product so yeah the, the compulsion is an important one but you can break that down into lots of different different kind of forks the compulsion to start i think is the most important one i think the compulsion to complete is biased towards some types of art but on the whole it's the lack of starting that holds people back and that's not a fear i've ever had i'd rather create something <laughs> i wouldn't say this in a job interview or something but i'd rather yeah. create something mediocre than risk not creating anything at all mm-hmm. and um that that that's a good method i think start yeah no totally and i think that's how this podcast got going i literally i was just like you know what screw it i'm gonna make a podcast um and i want to pick up on something you just mentioned there as well um that sometimes we just want to find interesting things to do Mm. and not necessarily have a goal in mind. And I think for me, that's been one of the most difficult things to kind of communicate. It's like, I want to, with my podcast, I want to make, I want to have these interviews with people, but like, I don't care if only 10 people are going to see it. Or not even that. I don't care if the only person who's going to listen to it is John, who already hears half of it anyway through the, through the film walls. 
have you found sort of you've had a similar kind of thing trying to sort of communicate that to others and just say look i just want to make stuff if i'm honest i've stopped bothering about that a long time ago um when i was at high school being in bands was a weird thing to do this is this is pre-nirvana when nirvana came along suddenly everyone wants to be in a band which i was very grumpy about at the time but in retrospect was absolutely fantastic and, and awesome um but people don't ask me anymore um I, I played on friday night with with a band of mine at these are end times and we haven't played for four years so we we got a gig together our trumpet player flew over from sweden and, and you know, there's seven of us so it's quite a big deal getting a, a gig done and my bandmates wives all wanted to go and they were really excited and they wanted to know why my wife wasn't going and for one thing i hadn't thought to invite her but the main reason is that the novelty of seeing me play in a band we've been together nearly 30 years you know it's she doesn't ask me so if my own wife doesn't ask me why i'm doing something i don't think there's anyone else whose opinion would really matter to me anyway i mean high school i can remember going to the careers officer and what do you want to do i want to be a musician like no really what do you want to do and you sort of battle that for a while and then i can remember in my 20s when people found out i was a musician playing bands their their natural instinct is to say oh right are you going to be the next I don't know, I'm trying to think of Ed Sheeran or the next Green Day or, you know, and p- pitch it really, really high. And certainly yeah. certainly when I was a teenager, that was where I was pitching it. Absolutely it was. And if people asked why I wasn't famous yet, I'd almost be a little bit embarrassed. And then punk rock ruined my life. About the same time I met Martin Wiskin, who you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I was playing in bands that were very much sort of more of a DIY punk ethic. And it completely blew my life apart because I no longer wanted to be in a band to be famous. I wanted to be in a band to create something. And sometimes with, with that aesthetic, you can you can tip over to the other side and you can make music that is deliberately unlikable. And yeah. that, that's fun as well sometimes. In this band, these are end times. I can remember many years ago, we were playing in a venue and we were fairly um, sort of experimental not quite jamming but we we can draw things out if we think they're going well and i yeah. can remember there was somebody in this venue looking at us with apps like curling his lip up like he looked hot he looked like he was you know we'd painted ourselves with excrement or something he was hot. he did not like us and i can remember looking around at the guitarist he was kind of the the band orchestrator you know he he sort of keeps us all, all going or stopping or whatever and i saw that he'd spotted him and he kept this bit dragging out for so long and afterwards, I said, why did you do that? That guy was really hating it. And he said, because of him. He said, everyone else in the room was on board with this. They all liked us. It wasn't going to upset anyone who was enjoying us. But that yeah. one guy, I wanted to make him suffer. And it's weird, retelling the story, it sounds quite spiteful and it sounds quite almost aggressive. But the reality is, if you're a musician, you are always fighting against the biggest tide of apathy imaginable. Nobody cares you're a musician. My wife thinks it's sad when I talk about being a musician like this, but nobody cares. So when you do get a reaction, whether it's good or bad, you kind of want to nurture it, really. I mean, it's nice to get get recognition. This gig we did on Friday was was sold out. You know, we we had people... Awesome. being turned away at the door no it's, it's great it's um i told a friend and he said oh, i was still still playing the old 10 capacity venues are you 
<laughs> so, no, it was, it was a few more. It was a few more than ten, and that's nice. And in my twenties, I would have played that gig, and then inevitably played the next gig with no one there and be really depressed and really fed up and yeah. want to quit and whatever. But now, I think it's. I hate to say it, it's probably maturity. It's probably yeah. just going. Okay, well, that was a really nice night. That was really fun, and that feeling will probably keep me going for another five or six years of of doing all the things that that nobody is interested in. But I think the reason some people, some musicians like me get more into outside of music, the older they get is there is almost no opportunity for, for mass appeal. Some of the, some of my yeah. favorite gigs that I do with um, Marin scales, my electronica, my, my uh, electronica act, my solo act, I guess I'd never like to call it solo acts. It makes it sound like I have acoustic guitar and just do songs about feelings, which um, I haven't got to yet, but I will do one day. And there's, there's this brilliant thing called the experimental noise scene in the UK. Well, it exists worldwide. And when we put gigs on, they're, they're well attended for that type of music. So it's like 20, 30 people. It's always the same 20 or 30 people. And the acts have included people taking apart kids' toys with soldering irons that are connected to amplifiers. They've included uh, this guy who's quite quite well known called Ryan Jordan, who does this thing with the flashing lights and smoke that i've seen make people pass out and give people nosebleeds there's friends who just rig up loads of effects pedals and and shout over the top and no one is going to walk into that and go yes yes but the funny thing is we've we've put on events in venues that are kind of mixed use which is a posh way of saying a pub you know we're, we're putting on someone shouting over game boy noises one side of the pub and the locals around the other side of the pub and almost with a fail without fail when we play a venue like that people will come and watch and it makes them laugh yeah. and they're probably laughing at us but that's kind of fun <laughs> and that's kind of part of it so that was a very long way to answer your question but in short i think when you're young and you think it is about platinum selling records and you think it is about all the bizarre trappings of of fame it's quite hurtful when people ask why you're doing it because you just want yeah. to go, well to get rich and famous. But then as you get older, even if somebody does ask, to be honest, at my age, I'm, I'm nearly 50, I get some reactions from younger people like, oh, I wish my dad was as cool as you, <laughs> which is like, it's a really funny compliment and I like it because, um, yeah, why isn't their dad as cool as me? No, um, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's a really sort of odd backhanded compliment. I, I fully accept how old I am. I've, probably, you know, I've, I've just told you and I've, I've alluded to my... Uh, my age several times but yeah sorry that that was a, a fairly meandering answer but um i think i got there ah, the no worries earlier in the season we called them side quests <laughs> so we went on the side quest and i loved i love these side quests though because that's where you find the absolute that's where you find the absolute gold and yeah why can't you be like why can't you be like my dad <laughs> um <laughs> so when there you talked about sort of making something kind of just for the sake of making it because it's something that we really enjoy is that kind of and this is going to be a little bit of a transition now where your project complicity sort of came from or am i clutching at straws here no that that one wasn't to make something difficult i wanted to make something beautiful with that um these are end times we we make i call it post rock but it's it's deliberate it's quite emotional music and i really like metal and yeah 
people listening to this who who can't see me, I am the least metal looking person ever. I, I went to a death metal festival or a black metal festival in Finland a few months ago, and I was the only uh, person with grey curly hair, wearing um, you know, not not with no tattoos and and not wearing a leather jacket because it was really hot. But I I love really heavy music, so I I got a guitar here that's tuned to it's tuned to b standard so it's, it's tuned really low it's like yeah. and again it was it was the will it was the desire to experiment i just wanted to make something as heavy as i could but that was also beautiful and a lot of metal fans think metal is beautiful but now i want something that you know my mum could hear and see beauty in so i i sat playing and and i'm sat in a recording studio here so i sat making music because that, that's what I do as often as I'm able. And I decided it needed vocals. So I was sat here trying to do vocals for it. My wife was in the room behind me, and I could hear her laughing, because when you've got a microphone, like a studio microphone, like the one I'm speaking through in headphones, you can hear everything. And yeah. I ended up saying, look, if you think you can do better, come and give it a go. Now, my wife's never been in bands. She wouldn't call herself a musician. She sat down and she nailed it first take absolutely nice. amazing just doing these like no words just sort of doing textures and and vocalizations and i suddenly realized actually this is very good this is one of the cool things when you write music you kind of you either aim at a destination or the music finds one for you and that that was very much that case so i did it again and then i did it again and i'm going to do it once more and call it an ep and and see what happens then um but Outside of the solo electronica stuff I've done, it's the first kind of band-ish type thing that I've I've had full control over the aesthetic of for quite a few years. And it, again, it's kind of flexing, flexing creativity. Well, you know, where can I take this? If if I foresee, if I see the whole picture, what does that look like? So, in answer to why I did it, I don't know. <laughs> and you know what? That's a perfectly valid answer, and it's so kind of difficult to communicate that that is that's, that's, that, that is an answer just doing something for the sake of doing it like I, I don't know why i do things but um somehow i get through it and you mentioned also there sort of towards the end aesthetic and it was so reading between the lines you said this was the first time like in a while you got had full control over everything mm. so i'm really interested to hear about the other aesthetics that you've sort of looked at because briefly just sort of flicking through just looking at the title with dystopian sound collective that just sounds like it's going to be something completely different and think? then there was what would you think uh, here's the thing that's when it's sort of like i see the titles i see the two titles because i see the meaning of complicity mm-hmm. uh which you defined as uh in, in the video as pleasure and another happiness and then I see dystopian sound collective. <laughs> they're quite different. Uh, like, they, you know, you say it, they're like, yeah, they're, they're quite different ends of a scale, aren't they? Yeah. So tell me, tell, tell me about all these different aesthetics that you've kind of had. Give me like a whistle stop tour. Okay, whistle stop tour. The first aesthetic was just ripping off Blur when I was in bands as, as a teenager, um, as was the style at the time. From there on, it was very much. Um, American skate punk kind of aesthetic. So relaxed, fun, slightly cheeky <laughs> bands like No Effects. I'm trying to think of really big bands in that genre. No Effects, AFI, or oh, well, Blink 182, 
although I think they suck personally, but um, they do their own thing. <laughs> so th- that was that. And then then I formed a band by accident that, that was supposed to have 17 bass players. I'm a bassist. Um, I play guitar now, but I'm a bassist. Yeah. We were supposed to have 17 bassists and a drummer. And the first practice that I, I kind of set up, only one other bassist turned up, and he'd just bought himself a guitar. So we developed this band called Zeeb, and it was probably the first band I did that I'm, well, I'm still really proud of. And the aesthetic for that was, um, well, we had we had a backstory, and if a band has a backstory, you know that it's going to have the aesthetic thought out. The backstory was that we landed in Shropshire in nineteen in eighteen ninety six, and it was deliberately Shropshire because we'd see if people actually put that instead of Shropshire when they wrote about. And we'd been hiding from the government for over a hundred years, but we got bored, so we started a band. And we wore various costumes. The, the probably the most extreme was the lycra unitards that we wore with bits of cardboard stuffed down the front of them, um, <laughs> just terribly. And um, <laughs> we we wore. I'm sorry, I, I, I was just laughing because I posted pictures of of this with uh, you know like um, we've seen Spinal Tap where he's got the gets through customs he's got a cucumber down the front of his yeah. trousers well yeah. we were doing that but we were doing it with <laughs> things the size of fire extinguishers i mean it was it was like <laughs> it was beyond parody it was and we oh yeah the crucial thing is we we wore mexican wrestling masks whenever we played which started off because we we'd all been in so many bands locally we didn't want people to know who we were when we started and, and yeah. So, yeah, the aesthetic for that band was just kind of weird. The problem was because we got more and more extreme all the time. We ended up playing a musicians' union stop the war gig for the second Iraq war, and we just went on in our pants. Um, well, actually, we, we tried to dress up as cruise missiles, but the, the cardboard went soggy and fell off, so we just ended up playing in our pants with these wrestling masks on. So, anyway, so that, that one just sort of burnt out. We just got so far. I think unless we'd actually, like, had sex with each other on stage... I don't think we could have gone any further. Actually, I say that um, we more than a few played in a place called Newmarket once. And you play in a costume band, you have to find somewhere to get changed. And I yeah. remember we played this pub called the Palominos in in New, New in, sorry Newmarket, and we were getting changed afterwards. And we we're in, in the cubicles, and the uh, the landlord came, he hammered on the door, and it wasn't that unusual that landlords would get upset at this because we'd end up sort of partially naked wandering through, you know, an estate pub, essentially, or venue. And he hammered on the door, and we're like, sorry, don't you? we'll be out soon. And he said, look, lads, I'm just going to leave a bottle of antibacterial spray by the door. Just just wipe down before you're done. And we went, yeah, sure, no problem. Thought nothing of it. It was literally weeks later at a band practice, and we went, what did he think we were doing in there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so that band was called Zeeb. Um, after that, sort of didn't really know what to do for a while. But I, I've not—I've never not been in a band since I was about fourteen. But we yeah. started playing um, kind of like stoner rock with a couple of friends who have been in bands that were, have been signed and have done quite well. And we, we we enjoyed kind of playing our stoner rock for a little while. But then we sort of brought in some other musicians, like a trumpet player and a friend who came in to play guitar but places this this is these are end times and the aesthetic for that was not laid out by me it was laid out by rocky the guitarist who knew very clearly exactly what he wanted to do and i'm fascinated by the aesthetic bands chain choose 
because I don't think there's any band in history ever that are completely organic. I genuinely yeah. don't think there ever has been. People thought the Ramones were, but no, well, they said they were brothers. That's an aesthetic. You know, it's a style. All bands have a thing. Like, these are end times. Part of the aesthetic is never showing our faces in a very different way to with Zeev when we wore masks. But it was just this kind of like, you know, you don't need to know what we look like to be able to listen to the music. I did make a video for for, for the band, but we decided against publishing it because it had our faces in. But um, yeah. then... Marin Skell, the first solo thing I did, the aesthetic for that was just choosing choosing a, a sci-fi character, Marin Skell's character in a uh, book by a guy called Ian M. Banks, a book called The Player of Games. And that was really just to have something to hang hang the aesthetic on because I didn't want to use my own name. Um, and beyond that, I don't think I've really found the aesthetic for that yet, which I think is... It's quite interesting. That that's that really is the one that's for me. Jack Bruce from Cream once said, When you're a musician, you make music that's for the for other people, you make music that's for yourself. And if the two cross over, then you're fortunate. Um yeah. Dystopian Sound Collective came about because we had well, I had the idea that I wanted to make a band that only used free samples. So music magazines all give away royalty free samples. And I wanted to, to put together a band that was almost no work because all the bands I've been in over the past, we've put so much effort in. It's a crazy amount of work being in a band, regardless of whether you're popular or not. So I wanted to just a throwaway band. I wanted the band to be the type of band you see last thing at a festival when everyone's kind of going nuts and you, you can, you know, you can enjoy the band without being challenged. And then I brought a friend in called Daz, and he's like, yep, yeah, I want the band to be really dark, be really miserable. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, you do the dark and miserable bit with your vocals, and I'll, I'll make everything else really happy. And I, I think it, it worked really well. We, we brought in friend Louise as well her, to do vocals. And, yeah, their vocals aren't cheerful, but the music that yeah. I make behind it is pretty chipper, I think. I'm trying to think. I think that's about caught up. Yeah, then Con Felicity, who we mentioned a minute ago. Yeah. That's, that's I'll, I'll, leaving out loads of other bands that only existed for a little while. Fair days, fair days. Like, this is kind of the way I've always imagined sort of bands and bands sort of getting together is like maybe you have perhaps one or two bands in your life. And then you might have like that first band you had when you were 16 and then the band you make it big with. Hmm. Just because I think that's just all of the. The, the the music that i've consumed so it's really interesting for me to just see someone who has gone through kind of all of them <laughs> well it, it kind of has i mean end, end times has been the most successful i mean um Zeeb was the one that, that shocked us because in the band we we'd only been going about four months and we were offered a record deal and because we'd come from a background of knowing what to say when someone offers you a record deal we told them that we were speaking to other labels and they panicked yeah. and signed us like on the spot, which we thought was great at the time. In retrospect, I think, oh, I'm not sure that was that. I don't know. I feel a bit funny about that. And we recorded the album in probably about a day and a half. And and the album was out a few weeks later and the launch gig was sold out. You know, there's no one was able to come through the door by about eight o'clock. And we were like, wow, we've cracked it. Finally, after striving and striving, we've cracked it. So we put on another gig, uh, gig a couple of weeks later that about three people came to. 
so i call it like the briefest peak any band ever <laughs> it was literally like for for two or three weeks we we did really well and then it just hit the skids and we still put out another two albums because when you're a musician you don't know when to stop ever um crap i've forgotten what i've lost my thread there what are we talking about <laughs> Yeah, it was just simply sort of as far like from my layman knowledge, I think, oh, people just have maybe like one or two bands in their life and you've done eight hundred and twenty seven. <laughs> it's it's always the always what it's the dream, I think, isn't it? It's it's the fantasy as a music fan. But the more you read into any band, you find it pretty much never happens. There are exceptions. I can't I can't honestly can't think of any. Even bands that appear so perfectly formed like Arctic Monkeys, they would have been yeah. in a bunch of bands before. A lot of people who want to get rich and famous in bands, they they will join and leave bands pretty quickly. You know, they'll join a yeah. band, give it a year, leave. In fact, I've read a lot of music biographies recently, and that really is a normal thing. You think Led Zeppelin, right? Good example. They're such a perfectly matched and formed band, but Jimmy Page was a session musician for years before Led Zeppelin. He, he yeah. doesn't know how many albums he's played on. He, he said it's probably over a thousand. And he was in the Yardbirds and he was in a band with Jeff Beck and loads of bands. He then went and found Robert Plant and uh, John Bonham, who knew each other through bands, but they'd both been playing in bands for years. In fact, Robert Plant, even though he was only about 18, had already had a major record label deal and, and lost it. And then John Paul Jones was another session musician. So, yeah, Led Zeppelin, what a, what a unit. But in reality, a load of guys who had done a lot of stuff. I mean, David Bowie's another really good example. The first few years of David Bowie's career, you know, he started five or six, seven years before Ziggy Stardust. And, you yeah. know, he released loads of records. It, it, the idea that people pop out fully formed, I don't know whether that suits the artist or it suits us. I think yeah. narratives like that we enjoy. I think we're quite complicit in, in in seeing that way because being a musician and playing in bands and being a music fan is slightly tribal and you want to identify with other people in your tribe. And yeah. if you see a band, you know, some of the more, I don't want to say down to earth, but the sort of the, the more, well, yeah, working middle class ethic bands like Arctic Monkeys, people identify with that and go, yeah, they're like me. And that's really, yeah. really appealing. And I think that that all changed with the punk scene because before that, it was quite all right to see all musicians as completely unattainable. And punk kind of flipped it on its head and said, no, you can do this. Yeah. Was that like the punk movement, like the sort of 90s-esque? I'm going to make you feel old. I was born in 93. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just thinking, where was I in 93? I was doing my GCSEs for the second time. Um, yeah, well, it, it kicked off. A lot of people still think of punk as people pogoing and spitting everywhere. And even in 76 and 77, that was a pantomime version of what was going on. Uh, yeah. The real punk band started in sort of New York and America, and, and they were people with, with little talent, but a load of passion. And they worked really hard. The British punks initially were kind of mocked by the Americans for just being sort of lazy and, and, and taking the wrong parts of it. But throughout the 80s is when the DIY scene really started. And then we're seeing like the anarcho punks where it became a negative thing to have a big record label. And it all became about what you could do for yourself and, and the art you could create for however small number of people it was. But yeah, they're in the 90s, 
basically Green Day, Offspring and bands like that just suddenly went huge. And I think much to everyone's surprise, especially the bands. And that that sparked a lot of what possibly people under 30 might think of as punk, which I think is cool because I think yeah. that phase is a lot better than the plastic punks of the 70s. I'm not, not crapping on all 70s punk because I love so many of the bands, but... <laughs> It, there's a big difference between seeing a band in the 90s who had been playing small venues for four years, then got a chance to be on Top of the Pops. There's a big difference between that and the Sex Pistols saying naughty words on a TV show. You know, they, yeah, they both would be in the, in the camp of punk, but I know which one I prefer out of those two. And you know what? I think that always brings us neatly onto what we were chatting about before we hit record. Um, and we were talking about creativity. And I think we were talking about talent and i think you said something along the lines of and i could be i could be misquoting here as so like we you you can have sort of we can have creativity and we can have talent and you can have sort of like one separate i'm trying to now desperately remember i I wish i took a better note (laughs) it's fine this came about because you reacted to to me saying I was a musician or talking about something musically in a way that a lot of people do, which is they say, oh, I wish I was talented. And my joke is always that, well, talent, lack of talent never held me back. And I say it jokingly, but I mean it. I don't believe you should have to be... Talent's indefinable. It, it's not a quantifiable thing. And I think the, um, the the desire to start something is more important than either talent or ability. because if you're a creative or you want to do something creative, there is nobody who's going to give you the green light when you're ready. You know, if you're a guitarist and you think, well, I can't play in bands because I'm not good enough. It's really only you who's decided that. And going back to you know, 80s punk, some of those bands literally couldn't play. And and yet they put out amazing albums. It's, it's the thing. Well, it's not just creativity. It's anything in life. If you wait for somebody else... If you if you wait to to try and meet somebody else's ideal of how good you have to be at something to do it, then you're probably not going to do it. Start. It's yeah. it's you know, it amazes me most about all the many years, nearly thirty years, I've been playing in bands. I think I've only been laughed at once or twice. I mean, no, I've been laughed at a lot in bands where I say we used to dress up and muck around, but yeah, as in somebody actually pointing and laughing. In fact, I don't know if it has happened. I really don't. Because if you put yourself out there, if you're on stage, and this is one of the rules for the, for the noise and nights we have, we have a rule that says, if you're prepared to get up here, go for it. That's the only yeah. bar to entry. Ha- having the, the enthusiasm, you know, having, well, having the guts to do it. And I think that is absolutely crucial to anything. I, I, I would go so far as to say I think most jobs should have an entry level that people can come into with no experience and no skills. Yes. Obviously, things like yes. surgery, you want them to have had a bit of training. Okay, yes, that yes, that's a caveat <laughs> that, that I will accept on that point. I once spoke to a, a, a professional photographer who was very sniffy about what he thought of as amateur photographers, and, and this is a whole other thing, that which I don't know, we might get onto. And... I said, well, how do you feel about amateur photographers? And he said, how do you feel about amateur dentists? And I was like, well, it's not really the same thing. It's a good line for an interview, maybe, but it's not really the same thing because an art you can get better at and you can learn the skills. A, a, a dent, you know, a medical thing, 
you still have training, but you still go into it not being perfect. And you still do a lot of training and you get the experience on the job. This is why experienced people get paid more than people who started, because experience yeah. is valuable. I mean, one day I might actually go and get lessons for playing bass. It's, it's not, I've not really got around to it in the last 30 years. <laughs> you only need one string and one finger to play bass. Oh, there's bassists listening to this. Are we shouting? It's like, yeah, I, I, I know of the joke, and I'm like, I'm not going to comment on anything. Uh, <laughs> but you mentioned photography there as well, and I, I only found out about this quite recently as I was just flicking through, flicking through your, flicking through your work. You have an absolute passion for photography by the looks of it, and I was going through your Flickr album. Um, and I'm just seeing, I'm seeing it kicks off, at least your latest stuff is kind of music, sort of taking photos of music. So it's kind of like you're almost on both ends of the camera now. If, if you're into something, I think a lot of people try and find as many angles to appreciate it or absorb it or get involved as possible. Now, always being into photography right back, I, I was developing, you know, developing films when I was a teenager um you know a friend's house by taping blankets over the windows and proper you know i say pre-digital is years before digital but it was always very difficult to do professionally so like yeah. a lot of people and the equipment's really expensive so like a lot of people I, I sort of did a bit and i carried a camera everywhere then then i got more into it and i managed to make photography part of my work part of how i how i pay the mortgage and whatever and that allowed me to buy the equipment, which allowed me to go to more gigs and take photographs. So we're talking kind of reasonable size venues in London. But those connections and those opportunities didn't come about because I bought a camera. They came about because I was publishing a zine at the time. So, you know, self-published magazine. And I was writing a lot about music. I used to put the word count on the zine and I had lots of contributors as well. But the word count would regularly be around 100,000 words. So these, these were big old things and through that I made friends with PR agents who worked for labels and bands and this is how a lot of creativity works in the you know the creative working environment operates in my my in my experience is you just speak to a lot of people I've got got a friend who's a, a very talented animator and he, he says to me yeah, how I've worked for myself for over 20 years now and so how do you do it he said, well, just speak to people yeah that's it you don't, I don't think you need any other advice. Talk. Talk and listen. No, yeah. listen first, then talk. I think that's probably a better way around. <laughs> I say it's yeah, like been and... talking and talking and talking here. But it's a podcast, so it's different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're allowed to talk on the podcast. That's the whole point <laughs> of it. Um, and, like, that, that talk, talking about uh, talking to people, like, that's, that's the thing that I found has been the biggest benefit in my sort of in, in in my career it's not been my degree it's been the people i've talked to kind of on the way because then i've made those connections i've made those friends and then i've been able to call on those connections to help me out with projects just like they have been able to call on me yeah and ultimately that some of the best projects are collaborations so yeah. Martin Whiskin, who you mentioned earlier, who I've got to say I know as Marf, because that was always, always his name, Marf. In fact, I, got, I, got, I saw him at the weekend and I shouted Marf as he was walking the other way and he stopped. So it still works. Um, he, yeah, the networking group he runs is collaboration, not competition. And that's yeah. such a brilliant tagline because 
there's there's enough work out there and there's enough opportunities out there because yeah. creative people make opportunities everyone does i don't want to keep yeah. I, I don't want to like keep siloing creative people it's just that's my experience and yeah. um yeah you collab some you collaborate with people sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't but you you learn a little bit more about the high high points and skills that each other have and yeah having a having a good network of people is brilliant i don't I, i'm a bit squeamish about when people formalize it and keep a a database yes. of, their, of their yes of their connections and write down well this person is good at this and this person is good as that because i think in my experience the connections i make ebb and flow yeah so i've talked with great love and affection about martin whiskin i probably went a few years without speaking to him um i yeah. signed him to my label once or his band <laughs> but yeah it would have gone a few years and he floated back into my life and i've thoroughly enjoyed it and i dare say at some point he'll float back out again and then we'll bump it it's it's not it's not a case of exploiting people for what they're good at it's a case of i think if you if you give enough opportunities that come from the right place and come from come from your yeah. heart and you mean it and you enjoy seeing your friends do well i think you've probably cracked networking really I think yeah. looking for opportunities for yourself. I mean, that's why you might, that's why you're doing it. And I think it's okay to be honest about that, but you'll get the best opportunities from helping other people. I believe that really strongly. Yeah. And I feel like that's sort of a good note to start rounding off uh, this episode. We haven't even had a chance to talk about your podcast yet. Can you believe you come on to a podcast <laughs> and you haven't even talked, talked about a podcast? Um, but just tell me, talk, tell me, gone. Uh, yeah, tell me, tell me briefly uh, about Andrew Culture's Positivity podcast. I like to talk, and yeah, it's a it's a funny thing being Same. on the other end of a podcast, being asked questions because I'm normally the one trying not to talk, and you know, sort of in, in encouraging somebody somebody along. But I I wanted to get better at speaking. Um, yeah, I had a speech impediment when I was a child, and. I think I talk okay. I don't think I have a. I'm from Suffolk, and I don't think I have a particularly thick Suffolk accent. I will be a. I'll, be, I'll admit, you know, if somebody else says, "Oh, you definitely have," then that's fine, and I'll embrace that as well. But I've never sung very often in bands, but I like to talk not because I like the sound of my voice, but because it it fires up synapses in my mind that don't that lay dormant normally so talking yeah. to people you don't know and, and that, that's very enjoyable and when i started doing the podcast i noticed that hearing my voice was odd which is why i joined toastmasters you mentioned that earlier so i've, yeah. I've worked quite hard at, at perfecting the way i talk um although i lost a tooth six months ago so i'm a bit a bit whistly at the moment um so the podcast came about actually as a method of rehearsing essentially because uh, i don't think i'll ever be a voiceover artist like like to whiskin but I, I enjoy using my voice for things that sounds really strange anyway but also the podcast came about because I, I kept meeting people i wanted to celebrate and by that i mean people like i interview a guy called avi kniznik who's a, a canadian jewish guy and mm -hmm. i say jewish because for him that's a big part of his his persona yeah. and he he quit school quite young uh, became a photographer and he's got a brilliant story about how he how he did that and it's quite remarkable there's another guy called michael perry who's who's got his own tv show and he quit his job to pursue his his 
you know, heart's desire of becoming a presenter, essentially, and, and horticulturalist, I interviewed my brother-in-law, who, in his 30s, as a joke, somebody entered him for the London Marathon, um, and it was for a charity. It's a great story. I, you have to go find it. He's called Mark Curtis, but he did he did the marathon and became obsessed with running, and he now, now competes at a very high level, doing 24-hour running competitions. I interviewed a um, a local photographer who has just done amazing projects, cataloging all kinds of walks of life and continues to. It's really, really exciting. Just people I want to celebrate, people I want to record. And, yeah. and that, that list yeah. is getting longer and longer. The other side of my podcast is split into two seasons that run concurrently. So that season one is talking to people that I think just need to be celebrated and recorded. Season two is me reading a novel I've written um it's not the first novel it's it's one that i haven't completed i stopped writing when my daughter was born 11 years ago and i will finish it it's a a comic novel it's like a a chase heist romantic comic novel but i couldn't remember what i'd written i know i've got two chapters still to write so i started uh, doing it as an audiobook to remind myself what's in it and also to put myself under pressure for finishing it and i'm very fortunate that a few people have asked when i'm going to finish it so <laughs> that's what so when are you going to finish it when i'm going to finish it um i tell you what i plan to take a few days and go somewhere else it might be going to visit a friend abroad or it might be just going and staying in an airbnb but i think i just need two or three days i can't do it at home because i've got all these other things that you say for, for writing i have to go away I, I write a lot for 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 my work for seo but for fiction i need very selfishly just to shut everything else out just to get yeah. those bits of my brain going yeah no no it's like i work from home and i can relate to having no one no other distractions um as well when my wife goes out to work that's when i can actually get around to doing some of the more creative uh kind of pursuits in my life so yeah i do definitely uh do definitely sort of relate to that and as well i also had a speech impediment growing up oh, did you? i went through a fair bit of speech therapy um and this is this is almost uncanny because you said there's somebody with the same name who lives near you yeah um and i used to live in suffolk i was a few miles outside of bury st edmunds oh Uh, right go on a little village between bury st edmunds and sudbury called hartest i wonder if it's the same tom sanderson Hold on, I'll knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the Tom Sanderson that used to live next door to me—he only moved away a few, well, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember. I don't. I can only vaguely remember speech therapy. It was my tongue's too wide for my mouth, <laughs> apparently. Um, and oh, mine doesn't move. Mine doesn't move properly. Wow, like really? they had to. There's there's a little bit underneath your tongue. There's a tiny little bit of flesh, and they had to ex- they had to kind of stretch it out. Wow. It connects the bottom of your tongue to the bottom of your mouth. It? I really don't know. I was like 10 when they did it. So I hardly remember anything about it. Um, but yeah, it's it, kind of weird. It's amazing. The spe- speech impediments is such a broad spectrum. Um, but I'm always fascinated. It's surprising how often somebody with a speech impediment tells me. I, I live my life very openly. To the yeah. extent that when I was doing a zine, we were my wife and I were going through... Uh, well, we were about to start fertility treatment, and I had to have a fertility test, well, a sperm test, and 
I published it in my zine, which I thought was a really good idea. And when I was when I was laying it out and getting ready to send to the publisher, I was like, I'm going to put my fertility result on here because people don't talk about this. And it's a normal yeah. thing. And I just I just want to open a dialogue and facilitate that. But then I th- the launch date for the zine was a zine fest in Brighton. So zine fests, everyone holds back their launch dates so they can launch there. And yeah. I went out the night before and got horribly drunk and was incredibly hungover during the, the zine fest with lots of people I'd never met before ask, talking about my sperm. <laughs> but at which point it didn't seem like such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what does this number mean? I said, oh, that means the percentage of them are dead. I don't know why. As I'm sat there hungover, they're probably looking at me going, yeah, I think I know why they're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. All right. That, I feel like, is the note to end this on. (laughs) Let's end this episode on sperm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Before we go to our questionnaire, uh, where could people find you online if they want to find out more about your work? andrewculture.com everything's there everything is on there it really is i mean like everyone else make make yourself a website like it's one link it's super handy and like for a podcaster like me i can just see everything in one go it makes prep so much easier like believe me (laughs) and and then at the end of this episode i will read out my 87 different social networks (laughs) we close out every episode with the prost questionnaire uh, these were then later adapted by Bernard Pivot and then later by my hero James Lipton. And now I'm going to present my musical adaptation mm. to you. What is your favourite word? Scruttox. What is Scruttox? <laughs> I don't know if it's a real word, to be honest. Um, Scruttox is one of those words that sounds rude, but I don't think it... I know it's not rude because it Mark. Um, DJ Mark Radcliffe used to say it on daytime radio one all the time, but it's just, yeah. I like any words that, that sounds rude, but, but actually aren't profane. I don't have a problem with swearing. I think it's like, it's like in language terms, it's like having a toolbox and, and swearing is the big hammer. It works for some yeah. tools, but you know, for some jobs, but you don't need it. Don't need it for everything. But Scruttox is, yeah, I'm not even going to say what I think it is. I'll leave, I'll leave that to the, uh, to the listener. Fair enough. Fair enough. What is your least favorite word? That's really tough. I hate to sound. It's probably can't. Yeah, and that so I you can tell by the pause that's a contrived answer because I think hate was the first thing that popped into my mind. I don't think there's any place for hate. In fact, even when my daughter was tiny, I I hate cauliflower. <laughs> like you don't <laughs> you don't wish to eat it. You don't need yeah. hate. There is there is no place for hate. Yeah. What engages you? Learning. Be that uh, learning of any type. And most learning, the learning I like the most is, is talking to people, listening to people, learning about people. We've never met before tonight. And yeah. I think I've got to know, I will have only got to know a tiny, tiny little percentage of, of who who you are as a person. Yeah. But it... it it just it poses so many questions in my mind. Really nice, in, in a really nice way. So it, learning is what triggers me, absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. And I just got to say, it's so much easier asking the questions than it's being asked the questions. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a couple of podcasts. It's like, yeah, no, no, no I prefer this site. It's easier. Um, what disengages you? Apathy. 
but whether it's my own apathy um i've learned to listen to my apathy now and not feel guilt over not completing yeah. some projects but i can become quite disengaged and quite frustrated with other people's apathy as well there's only two gigs i've ever done where people have seemed just bored and uh, one of them many 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 years ago somebody walked in just looked at me with complete apathy i, I took my bass off and I, i'm ashamed to say i threw it across the room and and walked off because yeah there was i actually i wouldn't act that way at all now but back then it was just apathy just triggers me it, i don't care why not I, I don't believe i don't believe in apathy any more than i believe in hate yeah yep all right what sound or noise do you love farting i mean i'd love to say something highbrow but i've got to be honest it, <laughs> it, it never fails to to amuse um to be honest almost anyone um had a moment a lovely family moment earlier my daughter uh, who's 11 she is in the kitchen which is the room behind me and she sneezed and I can sometimes sneeze on cue. So I said, oh, really? You say that? Well, I say. And I sneezed and I accidentally farted at the same time. And for a gentleman of my age, that's a dangerous thing. You see, um, <laughs> say like, fart, farting's like songwriting. If you have to push too hard, it's probably crap. <laughs> I'm going to use that as an audiogram. That's, that's going to be my promotional material. What... <laughs> It's going to be a really serious question next, isn't it? It is. I'll try and do my uh, news presenter thing and think of dead puppies or something to make myself <laughs> What sound or noise do you hate? That it, Anything repetitive. Now, that that's I know that's challenging because I'm a musician and all music is repetitive. But anything like a saucer, not quite stopping, or anything that's just tink, 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 or the dishwasher malfunctioning, anything that's competitive that isn't music and is outside of my control, I, I cannot explain why. I, it just absolutely bugs me. Yeah. Just makes me cross. I'm not cross because, you know, I, I do have some control over my emotions, but I will have to actually block it out if, if yeah. and go into another room. I, I don't know. I genuinely don't know what it is. That just just can't do it. Yeah. Question seven is everybody's favourite question. What is your favourite curse word? I'm going to go back to scruttocks. I think it's a good multifunction word. I'd like to see it used more often. Scruttocks. 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 <laughs> what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? I'm Other than things that require a degree, most things that I've wanted to attempt, I've done. Um, going back to, I, I did support work with adults with learning disabilities for years, and yeah. I learned British Sign Language while I was doing that, and that was something I'd always wanted to learn. I've had my own record shop. I've run polling stations during elections. I've I've done loads of different things. If I now, I honestly can't think of anything, which shows a lack of imagination. I think I'm quite content, generally. Yeah. <laughs> good place to be. Yeah. Content is a good place to be. What profession would you not like to do? I think being a high pressure salesman. Yeah. I think that that would be the worst thing. And, and I've 
many years ago, in my early twenties, I was, I had to go and do a training program for high pressure sales. And it made it so very, very clear that I never wanted to have anything to do with it because you're using the worst parts of humanity, the worst parts of psychology, you know, so I think, no, that, and some people, no, I can't even defend it. I was going to say some people, you know, are probably very good at it, but I don't think they should be. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I have to sell because I, everyone who works for themselves has to sell. You, you, you sell that. That's the only way you stay busy. But yeah, you, the best way to sell is not to sell. It's to do, do your best, be a decent human being and people will make, make you offers. If you have yeah. to ask for a sale, it might not be the right sale. Yeah, uh, totally. Final question. If you could say only one statement to any one person, what would that statement be and who would that person be? Statement would be be excellent. And I'd say it to anyone. It's because it comes from Bill and Ted, be excellent to each other. And whenever I'm trying to say I'm a parent, whenever my wife and I are trying to explain something or explain ethics to my daughter, it always comes down to that. Be excellent to yeah. each other. I, I, you, you can write whole books about ethics, but that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Be excellent. Yeah, totally. Remind us again, where can I find you online? Andrewculture.com. Lovely. And you can also find this show online as well. We are on TikTok, which I'll update at some point. Uh, meet interesting people. I finally updated the Instagram. Uh, we got rid of the underscore, so now it is literally Tom meets interesting people, all one word. Uh, Twitter, Tom meets people, and we're also on Good Parts. We're in the all-time indie documentary uh, top 100 chart, Ooh. and I want to stay in that chart. And you've been helping me so much. We're starting to climb those ranks. We're starting to get into into the 60s. So thank you so much to everyone who's been doing that. And finally, if you absolutely adore this episode, which you do, I think I think they do. I think they yeah. do. Um, you can also read my reflections um, and my thoughts. And you'll see on the video version of this, uh, I have been writing so many notes. You've no idea. I mean, can anyone read this, though? Anyone on audio, you're not going to be able to see this. Uh, <laughs> you'll find my substack at tommeetsinterestingpeople.substack.com. Andrew, thank you so, so, so much for today. I genuinely really, really appreciate this. I really appreciate kind of having the, the opportunity to speak to you. And yeah, thank you very much. You're most welcome. Everybody, you have a most wonderful day and I shall see you in the next episode. Be excellent. <laughs>